Oh, bro, it's just like, dude, you get the best barrels ever, dude. Just like you pull in and you just get spit right out of them. And you just drop in and just smack the lip. Drop down, snap. And then after that, you just drop in, you just ride the barrel and get pitted. So pitted like that. Time to get out there today in the country. We're going to try to lighten it up a bit today. Some fun conversation. We're listening to some Anahedron and Hash collaboration between those two guys. I'm here in studio with Abby Martin. What's up, Abby? What's up? Time to get dope. Time to Time get, to get dope. What's up, everyone? Thank you so much for tuning in live to Dosed. Kyle Tierman is a professional surfer sponsored by Patagonia. But Kyle paddles into territory that even most pro surfers do not. Kyle travels the globe chasing down massive waves created by storm surges. He has extensive first-hand experience with something that is impossible for most people to begin to comprehend. The sheer power of the ocean, the raw energy of planet Earth. You know, most people would probably be satisfied with a career as a professional extreme athlete, but not Kyle. His experiences in the ocean led him to be an environmental activist, which I've had the pleasure of working with him on a little bit of a part of a genius event he co-created called the Motherfucker Awards, a mock Hollywood gala that honors the biggest corporate polluters, which we'll be explaining more in detail later in the episode. He's also the host of a very great podcast called The K- Kyle Tierman Show. Hope I'm saying your last name right, by the way, Kyle. <laughs> and is the head of editorial at Mudwater, a coffee alternative product that harnesses the plentiful health qualities of mushrooms. Kyle's just an all-around adventurer, a really great down-to-earth guy. He offers so much to people around him and having new experiences in nature 
For example, in the very short time I've known Kyle, not very short, I guess it's been a couple of years now, he's taught Mike and I how to surf. And he took us on an epic three-day hike in the Sierra Mountains. Probably one of the best trips of my life was just another weekend for Kyle. So without further ado, I'm excited to introduce our friend, Kyle Tierman. Welcome to Doost. Thanks for having me, Abby. So, Kyle, of course, there's so much to talk to you about. But before we get into the crazy shit that you do, any dosed moments you want to share with our audience? Anything that you remember that really changed your perspective or enlightened you in your life? Well, I'm trying to think back to our hike through the Sierras. Did we take mushrooms on that trip? Uh, I think we took. <laughs> what did we take? We took, took some stuff, right? Maybe a MDMA. Little, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Time to get. I think we took. I think we took MDMA with my dad. Yeah, too. that was great. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know <laughs> yeah. if you wanted to go there, but yeah, and it was like pure grade uh, maps quality. <laughs> like, yeah, that's yeah, so funny. I forgot ridiculous. about that. Yeah, my dad is like the biggest. He's like seventy two and the biggest fan of MDMA of of anyone I know. <laughs> I also uh, remember your your dad was tripping and then trying to swim ac- or on something and trying to swim across this big lake and you had to like go out and like carry him back and I just remember when he got to the shore he was like that was the greatest experience of my life <laughs> having my son like carry my like weak tired body to the shore while I was like was you know amazing I'm having this experience so to set the stage for people um, Abby Mike my dad Eric his name's Eric and I took a three day hike through the Sierra, Sierra mountains. And, um, it's a long hike into this lake that there are no other campers at. Um, it was springtime. So it's beautiful wildflowers going in. And then this just massive pristine lake that we camped on the side of. And on, I guess it was the second day we all took MDMA with my dad and there was, there was an Island out in the center of the lake that we all swam to. And then my dad was playing catch up. And I think Abby, you were like, is your dad okay? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I better check on him. So I swam out to him and he's like, I think my calves are cramping up on me. <laughs> so I was like, here, hold on to my shoulders. And he held on to my shoulders like like piggyback style. And I swam him over to the island. He's like, I just love you so much, Aww. man. It's like, and come to think of it, it was one of the best MDMA experiences I've had ever. Um, I'm happy we just brought that up because that was a, a moment in time that almost slipped away. Yeah, because you have uh, so much other shit going on. It's probably just like a blip <laughs> on the radar for you, but it was like transformative for me and Mike. We were like, remember that trip in the Sierras? And Kyle's just like, what? Like, oh yeah, that one? Like one out of like 30. I mean, dude, I wish I could give my dad some MDMA. I think he'd uh, lighten up a little bit, Fred, if you're listening to this. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I guess like, yeah, I mean, that that's really cool that you, that, that meant something to you, Kyle, um, because you're the biggest adventurer I know. I always brag about you to my friends and I'm like, dude, I know this like pro surfer guy and he's like super cool and he taught me how to surf and stuff and i always gas you up um but you know we live near the beach and we always see people surfing of course mike has taken to surfing quite a bit ever since you um introduced us to it and obviously there's people who are highly skilled out there but they're not pro um they would probably love to be but like this requires a level of dedication beyond being good at surfing that puts you into like the category that you've been in for quite a long time i guess walk us through how that journey started and what point in the journey did you realize that you could like make this into a career 
Yeah, I grew up in Santa Cruz, California, which is um, sort of a surf mecca. So all my big brothers and sisters surfed. Um, all my friends surfed. It was really a way that I like, gained a lot of my friends. Um, so it was very much just embedded deeply into the the lifestyle there. Um, and I think that it, from a pre- pretty soon when I started surfing, I decided that I wanted to do it professionally um i think that it partly was a real uh enjoyment of of the activity itself um and i think that partly it was this idea i had pretty early on that if i could get a company to basically foot the bill for travel i could see the world for free um which is a pretty rare opportunity but i saw a few people who were a little older than me doing that um how old were you were you like a little kid out there like five were you one of those like five-year-olds yeah i I started surfing when i was like 10 um but before before that that i i had been skateboarding since i was five um that i was just on a, a board from a very young age um and i was um surfing early on um usually what what companies will do for groms they call them you know, young surfers is they'll get them to put a sticker on their board get free clothes the parents love that because they don't need to pay for clothes for the kids <laughs> uh, uh and then uh you know the, the companies have a little walking billboard walking around uh middle school um it's kind of an, an ingenious marketing scheme actually when you think about it from from surf companies perspective um but i was from like i would say like 14 or 15 on um got pretty engaged in environmental activism largely at the behest of uh my mom um she was just someone who always was telling me that you can't just rely on surfing you always need to be thinking a little bit bigger and surfing you're literally immersed in the natural environment so it was a pretty easy jump for me to start making these kinds of connections. Um, and she had a couple friends who worked at this organization called the Rainforest Action Network. Do you, do you know about oh, yeah, uh, yeah, Rainforest totally. Action Network? Yeah. yeah. So, so they do a lot of good work on um, th- their big campaign at the time was calling out big banks for financing um, polluters and telling the story that these huge uh, polluters, whether it's fossil fuel industry or um, really any of these these juggernauts that people normally point their ire at, just behind that are being underwritten by these banks, and they're using their um, their people's money to to finance this kind of stuff. So I thought that was a very interesting idea, and I started volunteering at Rainforest Action Network as a a high school project. And it was right around that time that I had this, this insight that seems obvious now, but at the time it was kind of a, a big aha moment for me that the companies I was representing as a surfer were actual representations of my values in the world, which led me to this next question, what were my values? Mm-hmm. And I, I vividly remember sitting down with my mom, uh, and like basically making this map of what my values were, um, 
which is like it sounds so obvious but i don't think that many teenagers do that kind of thing yeah i don't think many teenagers are linking the fact that like chase bank is funding tar sands and stuff like (laughs) you know or or even just that you're actions have an effect on the world i think as a high school you just feel so powerless that you're you are sort of bumping up against all these these walls in reckless ways maybe in some subconscious way to recognize that you do have an effect on the world um and so it was around that time that i started doing more research into the company patagonia which is unequivocally the the best most environmentally responsible surf company in the world um part of the reason for that is that they're although they're a billion dollar company now they're still privately held so it allows them to make decisions that are antithetical to their bottom line um in support of the environment um so i reached out to them um i had a friend of a friend who knew who yvonne chenard was who's the founder of that company and I threw a Hail Mary email telling him that I was uh, concerned about the company's banking practices. And wow. I, wanted to ta- I, and I wanted to talk with them about um, doing a campaign about banks. And I think that I just tickled the old curmudgeon's fancy just enough to, uh, to call me back. I, I got a call from him. Was like, were hey, you already I'll... like a pretty acclaimed surfer at this point? Or were they just like, who the fuck is this like it, I wild was... out 15-year-old who has like the audacity... To confront us about our banking practices. I think that it was the latter. I don't think that was my, <laughs> I don't think that it was my my cutback or my ability to get to that got them to write back. Um, I think it was just pure novelty. Um, he so Yvonne um, called me back and he invited me down to Patagonia um, at, at their offices in Ventura, and I sort of laid out this this vision that I wanted to surf for them and sort of double as a journalist. Um, and my idea was that if, if they would foot the bill for me to go to various um, coastal destinations around the world, I would make short form documentaries for them about these environmental issues. And your um, family had a history in documentary film as well yeah. so it kind of was a, per- a perfect fit my dad's a documentary filmmaker so mm-hmm. that was um that's worth noting because i think that i was able to expedite a little bit of that learning process i already knew how to i already knew the the basic framework for storytelling um and they patagonia um the short answer was they said no but um but you know come back to us uh come back to us in a year and, and we'll talk and in the meantime, I ended up writing a small grant um, and going down to Chile and making a short documentary about the um, this proposed coal power plant that was being underwritten by Bank of America. And I t- told this little story about uh, how your money was going towards this coal plant in Chile um, and that by moving your money into local banks and credit unions, you can have this leveraged effect on your community and on the environment. And then that that piece came out in 2008, right when the banking collapse happened. So there was a lot of interest in that banks in general and my story specifically. Um, and I got a, a, quite a bit of press for that story, was able to give a, a TEDx talk that got a lot of views. Shirtless. And 
shirtless in a wetsuit, no less. Yeah. Uh, and, Ladies, and, check it uh, out, baby. Check it out, baby. The, the, uh, the thumbnail for it was, was me in the spring suit, but the play, <laughs> play button was right, right over my crotch. <laughs> so so <laughs> I think that put a zero on the, um, on the views there. And then I, <laughs> and then, yeah. And then I went back to Patagonia and was like, Hey, let's, let's do this. And they said, okay. Um, let's let's make it happen and that really dictated the next few years of my life full disclosure this podcast is sponsored by patagonia they're directly paying me as well just kidding kyle it's so rare to like actually hear that you were pro you like were so proactive and that this somehow worked that like you convinced this major corporation to enlist you into like their whole program and and double as this journalist slash professional surfer and then you just like went and made this documentary yourself and it actually was amazing and really shed light on this really important issue and that's crazy dude i didn't realize really how all that came together yep yep damn uh, yeah it's (laughs) quite it's interesting um I mean, there's so much that you have done. Like, for example, I mean, you just got back from surfing in Alaska, which I didn't really know was a thing. Like, are you are you one of those <laughs> lunatics who surfs the glaciers that crash into the ocean and then you surf the wave? Or were you just doing other like remote stuff there? No, that, that shit's so fucking dangerous. I know surfers who have tried to surf the waves that come off of glaciers and there are ice chunks that come at you and it's i think that the surfers tried that a couple times and then it was a it was like a nah no thanks and then it was done by some of the gnarliest surfers in the world so people it was just, just like it's such a weird it's like kind of dystopian yeah you know? it's like if they just it's wait so on a boat and they wait at the glacier like waiting for a big chunk they're to like, fall we got off one. and they're just like oh yeah it's melting let's jump in the water now to like surf the wave it's it's wild that that, that is actually happening but i guess not Isn't, that much as you're saying doesn't it seem like that would be a scene in the prequel to Mad Max when everything was melting? It's like a scene in Escape from New York, like yeah, when the yeah, post-apocalyptic, yeah. like surfing through the city, but it's like pretty close. And it's like, yeah, yeah you know that you're gonna die, and you're just like, let's just fucking surf the last wave when like the the ice sheet falls. It's gonna like <laughs> drown out the planet. It's like, let's surf, bro. Let's hang loose on our way out of here. Yeah. Um, so, how was Alaska? What were you What were you surfing there? Uh, you're, you're surfing waves off of these islands, <laughs> <laughs> real waves. Uh, but the, the water's really cold there. It's like 40 degrees. And, um, I had a chance to, to go there with, um, a writing mentor of mine, uh, named Steve Hawk. Uh, actually he's, um, the former editor at, at Surfer Magazine and, um, actually Tony Hawk's big brother, um, fun fact. And he, what? he charters this boat every year to the Schumigan Islands um, in search of waves that have yet to be ridden. Um, and the, the water is very cold. It's extremely beautiful and pristine. Orca whales, bald eagles, feral cows on these islands. Um, people have not lived on these islands for, um, I think, since the 1980s. There were cattle ranchers there. Um, but then before that, it was the the indigenous peoples of um, the Aluit tribe, which the Aleutian Islands are named after. I wonder if but, the, the humans abandoned, were abandoning the islands because of the U.S. military pollution on them. They're like, all right, we're out of here, dude. Just fucking. I have no idea. I, I would love yeah. to know that history. But we did find some artifacts when we were tripping around the islands. It was. Wow. Uh, Wait, so had, <laughs> so had anyone surfed there before? 
Yeah, people had okay. surfed there, but there's uh, there's so many islands, um, and they're so rarely surfed that there's still opportunity to to find new waves, um, which is just you know it's kind of a the holy grail, right? Is is rocking up on a wave that no one's ever been surfed, no one's ever surfed. It's like there's a lot of romanticism that that goes along with it. Um, but it was uh, I, I just got back from from that, um, and it was it was cool because it was half like surf trip half um writing retreat over the past few years i've spent a, a lot of my time within journalism in the writing form it started out first in documentary film and then moved to podcasting which i still do but really in the last three or four years i've been i consider myself primarily a writer um and steve is this you know he's like 60 Four, he's been a, a journalist for his whole career. And he's just one of those like leather sold blue collar journalists that you don't really see much anymore. Like he's the kind of guy that like Matt Taibbi writes about in his book, Hate Inc., where he says that like, you know, journalism used to be more of a blue collar industry. Yeah, like gumshoe, like intrepid, you know, long form. Right. And, and he's so, so this, so Steve is just, he's such a, a tactician when it comes to writing and story structure, which is something that I think a lot of writers now um, lack. It's it's a lot. Journalism seems to be now more about getting the story, like breaking news really fast, hot takes. Forget about and the story. Just write the headline. That's exactly, journalism, baby. <laughs> totally. Yeah, exactly. So Steve is, he has such a deep knowledge of story structure um, that it was, that was my favorite part of the whole trip is that we would get to, to surf. And I actually wrote a story about the trip that's coming out on Patagonia's website that Steve helped walk me through. And it, it felt like I was able to level up my storytelling skills, um, through this guy just immensely. So I was <laughs> able to get a, a two for one out of it. Well, it's really cool. Cause like, this is kind of what you do. I mean, you kind of link up with really cool people and you kind of like, are under the tutelage of like people who just do really crazy stuff and you just learn and then you like have these incredible podcasts or write about your experiences. And it's, it's really instructive and very inspiring and just really interesting because it's stuff that you, you're really, really like, well, not uh, well-rounded isn't the right word, but like you, like you really, it's a very diverse network of like subjects and philosophical fields that you tap into and you're like very curious. And so it is very cool um, to follow your work and, and get a lot of insight out of it. Going back to the, the whole surfing waves that no one has before, I remember you telling me something that really dosed me, I guess, which is like how you actually chase down waves by basically looking at like google maps like satellite footage <laughs> of storms in the middle of the fucking ocean hundreds of miles away and then like know when the wave is going to be at a certain location and sometimes you guys will fly and like drop i mean not even the like remote islands or shores or whatever like sometimes in the middle of the ocean right like how does that all work sure uh most people don't Think about the fact that when a wave crashes on the beach, it is likely coming from thousands of miles away. And the medium of water is what is allowing these um, energy um, 
basically energy spirals to travel across the ocean. Um, and the, the way that it works is when the wind blows in a part of the ocean for a sustained period of time, hard enough and, and in it with a big enough mass that um, meteorologists call a fetch, that's what creates a storm. So because of the Coriolis effect, that wind that's blowing will spiral which is what you know you, we all know those satellite images of big s- spiraling storms and that energy begins to organize itself as it moves across the ocean um until it hits your beach and what what creates a wave is um energy moving through the ocean bumping up against either a reef or a sandbar or something to make that energy crumble into a wave um and some waves are really little and some waves are really big and a lot of that depends on the the velocity and size of that storm thousands of miles away but to give an example of that about this when i was in alaska i was um that we did get a south swell that started below chile and it moved up the coast um, and my friends at the same time were at, down in Mexico surfing that swell. And then three days later, I was surfing that same swell in Alaska. Oh my so that's, that's, how, Incredible. that's how far this energy will move across a continent. And how you could know 72 hours in advance, like, oh, this is going to get to this place. And you could even like potentially go to chase the same swell that you had just surfed. Like you could fly. Totally. From, yeah, you could know? you surf in Mexico and then be like, all right, we're going to go catch it up in Alaska now and just fly, take That's like a nuts. plane up there. There was a movie made about surfers that surfed one continuous swell. I think they went from Tahiti to Mexico to California to Alaska all on the same swell. Oh, my God. I mean, to that's, me, talk about fucking luxury. Yeah, no <laughs> shit. I was just going to say, ooh, that's, sham, a, that's a bougie. Uh, problem. <laughs> totally. Just on a yacht, you just jump off. You're like, let's just take a big old surf journey across the Caribbean or whatever the hell. You know, surfing, I, to me, and Mike, I want you to chime in because you actually surf. But like, for me, it's such a crazy sport. And anyone well, hold who, on. Uh, you've actually surfed too. You yeah, no, no, fact, no. I mean, but you when Kyle surf. took us, I, I do think it's important you to say that I, when I, Kyle I've was tried. coaching us, we not only did you surf, but we <laughs> both surfed the same wave side by side. Abby, that was how I cajoled you into coming on to my podcast the first time. And I was really impressed because you were a swimmer in high school, right? So you actually had that the the paddle cadence that takes most people a little bit of time to learn. Well, thank you. I think skateboarding probably helped my uh, my footing, skateboarding and snowboarding. But yeah, no, surfing's amazing. And I think that anyone who's done it, even in just like two foot waves, knows what I'm talking about here, which is like, it's fucking scary. And even when I just go out there and surf a, the little, little baby whitewash, like I, I feel like I'm like going to die sometimes. I mean, the wave hits you, knocks you out and you're like, <gasps> you're like, Oh my God, I'm alive. And it's like a one foot wave. <laughs> like It's just hilarious. But then when you're talking about five, 10, 15, 20 foot, 40 foot Waves. I mean, picture like, yeah, skiing is, it could be very dangerous. Obviously, there could be like an avalanche is always a threat. But you are surfing essentially down the height of a small mountain that is fluid. 
waves are unstable. If you make one wrong move, you're going to get crushed by the entirety of the weight of like the ocean. I mean, you could easily die out there, Kyle. Like, talk about how you transitioned into big wave surfing and what that experience has been like. Like, what's the biggest wave that you've surfed? Like, you were at Mavericks, right? Yep. So there's a wave called Mavericks that's about an hour north of Santa Cruz that's renowned for not only is it an iOS update on your computer, it's also a large wave uh, in Northern California. Um, but Mavericks is is unique in the way that it's very um, it's positioned where there's very deep water just outside of the wave. So the swells moving in don't get fractured by any of the bottom contours on the ocean. It really just allows that power to hit the reef incredibly hard. Um, I think a good analogy for the way wave water energy moves and, and storms move across the ocean is um, sound waves. So if you imagine yourself screaming down an alleyway, that sound is going to continue moving until it hits some object, which will make the sound refract and, and dissipate. Mavericks is really unique in that it's very deep water, and then there's this jutting reef that is sitting out about a half mile in the ocean that allows for consistent 40, 50, even 60-foot waves to break in basically the same place every time. And that's a really important factor because um, when you're paddling in to catch these waves, it's all about positioning. So you need to to paddle fast enough and be in the, the exact right spot to be able to um, catch these waves. Uh, so that's a spot close to my house. Um, and I got into surfing it because I was living with a guy um, named Tyler, who's a really accomplished Maverick surfer, who's about 10 years older than me. And we were housemates. So he one day said... Um, well, I said, I'm interested in surfing this wave. And, and he said, all right, let's do it. I'll uh, help you train for this. I'll get you on the right equipment and I'll take you out there. So that mentorship was really what allowed me to, to start surfing that wave. And, and how and do just, you train, like explain the training process too, as um, you're describing this? Yeah, a lot of it is about staying calm and comfortable in a very um, chaotic situation. So one way for that is is by um, swimming underwater in a pool, which is is good because it allows you to get through that feeling of panic while not being able to breathe. Since then, I think that the, probably the best way to train for surfing big waves is to swim out into surf that makes you feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because although you can get more comfortable with, with lung capacity and... Um, and cardio and, and just basic breath holding in a pool, you want to mimic the situation of being in a turbulent ocean as much as possible. So you're getting rolled around in big waves and you need to develop an ability to relax in that situation. Um, and what you do is curl into a ball, hold your nose so you're not letting any water out, cover your head so your board doesn't, in case your board hits you, you don't get knocked out. And then just practice um, your meditation underwater. So I think that if people are interested in surfing big, big waves, um, the best way to do that is to swim in shore break that feels just a little bit out of your comfort zone. 
something that's not going to kill you, but will allow you to get comfortable with those those bee stings, so to speak. Yeah, meditate underwater while you're floating in like a in hell. I mean, like the I mean, the thing that's crazy about it is like you have to learn how to hold your breath, which to me, especially as someone who smokes a lot of weed, it sounds really hard, dude. Like I can't even hold my breath for like 30 seconds. I mean, how do you train yourself to do that? And how do you actually meditate while you're floating in a ball while another wave is like about to crash on you? Like how like explain your thought process as you're in that situation? Uh, I mean, I, so here's a question for you. Mm -hmm. When you started hosting TV at the beginning, would you get flushed with adrenaline and get any kind of stage fright? Oh yeah, totally. Okay. So explain, explain that feeling. So the first episodes of breaking the set, I, I look like I'm on speed. I'm just like, Hey, this is Abby Martin. Welcome to breaking the set. Like, Fuck it! Like so, like super jammed, and then of course after a week or so, I started to ease up. But yeah, at first it was just like gunning. I mean, just the adrenaline is just pumping through your body, and you just feel like you're like having an out of body experience. Yeah, so I think that it's this, that same thing. It's adaptation, and the more you do something, and the more comfortable you you get with it. That's sort of the the gift and the plight of humans, maybe more generally is how adaptable we are so for for me it was just about moving through that adaptation process and when you're going at anything difficult whether it's big wave surfing or or public speaking um you need to really want it and i think that that's what can allow you to move through that burn period whether it's it's stand-up comedy or anything like it's gonna suck and you need to have something deeper that's driving you to come back to it again and again yeah but i Um, knew i wasn't gonna die like that i mean i (laughs) but you can but it feels like you're gonna die right well yeah i mean that's a that's a great point abby i mean kyle you're being a little humble about it i do want to for for scale for people to help picture this um every 10 feet is about a story of a building so a 50 foot wave is about the height of standing on top of a five-story building and looking down like that's a that's pretty high. I mean, when you look on the top of a three-story building, that's like, you know, that's like your 30-foot wave. 60-foot wave, of course, you know, like these are pretty big waves. And I think when people sit at the beach and like look at the if you're normally when I surf, it's like 5-foot waves are like my max that I I go out in. And if you're sitting on the beach and you're looking at a 4 to 5-foot day, the waves don't look that crazy. You're like, "Oh yeah, that's cool." But when you paddle out into a 5-foot wave, even a 4-foot wave, paddling out into a four foot wave is really scary when you have to paddle through the break like where the wave is breaking that's what you have to get through and that is extremely intense and i have wiped out on four foot waves where i'm i get like five or six somersaults underwater like it's like a washing machine it's it, i'm several shelted that many times there's been times on a four foot wave where i i'm underwater and i'm like okay i feel like i'm running out of air like i gotta come up eventually um and i've even gotten like hurt pretty bad by like getting like knocked on the bottom of the ocean and like i like pinched a nerve in my neck it messed me up for a year it was just from the just from the power of the, it wasn't even hitting the bottom it was the wave itself and the power of that spinning wave that just like tore my body apart and this is a four foot wave. And so we're talking about 10 times this. I mean, it's kind of hard to comprehend, like, actually the, the feeling of that amount 
of power. It's scary as fuck. <laughs> it's it's scary as fuck. You need to. I mean, you need to. Like, the biggest mistake you can make before surfing big waves is not taking a shit. Because <laughs> yeah, that would suck. Dude. I swear to God, I've had in depth conversations <laughs> with other surfers about this because you'll get out there and your body will make you want to take a dump while you're out in the middle of the ocean. So it's very important that you clean your system before you go out there. I mean, I think most people understand that scared shitless is like a yeah. real thing. It's like your body does. I mean, that's true with like it, soldiers too. It's like you will not yeah. realize it, but like shit and piss yourself. Um, yeah. You know, just because something intense is happening. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's scary, but it's also like, I remember one of the first time, the first time I, I went out and surfed Mavs. Um, I, yourself. <laughs> I, I, I fucking shit myself. No man. way, dude. Well, no, I didn't. Okay. Uh, well, I actually, I, I mean, I it is hell, your, it's your body diverting all your blood to your most essential muscles and organs. And so the, the organs that are holding all your, sh- your poop in, uh, it's <laughs> all the blood has gone away from it because it's like, we need to survive. We're going to push more blood to brain, muscles, heart, all that stuff. And your non-essential organs get neglected. And, and that sometimes Thank causes you, that, but it's cool that you didn't. You didn't actually. I'm I'm so happy this conversation went down this road, guys. Uh, so I re- but I remember the first time I went and surfed Mavericks. Very early, I was like, I'm just gonna catch a wave and just rip the bandaid off. And I paddled as hard as I could for the a pretty big wave. Um, and at the last minute, realized I wasn't gonna get into it, so I pulled back. Oof. But the energy from the wave was already pushing me forward, so I couldn't stop and it did what's called sucking you over the falls where it makes you feel like you're getting sucked over a waterfall and you get pushed down very deep in the ocean and the difference between surfing big waves and regular sized waves is you get you get pushed so deep that you need to clear your ears as you're going down and i remember thinking that like the there was pressure on my ear that i had to and I had to clear as I was going down. Um, Wait, that's something but, that you don't really think about either, because everyone knows about the bends when you're scuba diving, if you've ever done that. But like, that's crazy that you have to think about that as you're falling off of a waterfall. Like, you have to think about depressurizing. Yeah. <laughs> how does that, re- How do you do that as you're I, falling off of like Niagara Falls? Like, how do you, you actually just hold do your that? nose? Yeah, hold your nose and <laughs> and do that little little push of the air thing but i remember i remember on the drive home feeling so fucking relaxed and so at peace and this uh consistent feeling of of anxiety and disease that i've had for a long time and and still have just felt totally still and that lasted for a few days afterwards um, and I just remember thinking, Ooh, this is something that I want to feel more of. Um, and, and that's worth it for me. And I, and the process of training and doing it more responsibly just felt like it was, um, a really great, I mean, it's, it's, a, it sounds maybe a little weird to, to say, but like it was a bit of, um, a rite of passage, which I think we don't have often in our cultures, but like to do something that you're afraid of and move through it really does change you on a fundamental level. Yeah. And to fail the first time, you know, I mean, you, you got back up and then you basically became a big wave junkie, you know, and and you, what is it, what is it about that, that, um, that gave you such like a, a 
peaceful outlook, you think, just having done it and having overcome something so huge? I'm drawn to uh, intensity. I think that that's something that my my mom's always told me. I think I've always had, I, I don't want to say an anger problem, but just an annoyance and just an annoyance with a lot. And I've had that since I was a pretty little kid. Like I remember my, my mom telling me that when she would take me into, <laughs> when she would take me through the store when I was like six and if someone would come up and try and like pinch my cheek and be like, Oh, you're such a cute little kid. I'd look at them and I'd say, don't touch me. <laughs> well, that is pretty crazy that a, that is a pretty stranger crazy. would be like, ah, hello, yeah. come in my van. But, uh, but I think that just she taught generally, you well. she taught me well, exactly. I think that generally, though, I've I've always been attracted to uh, things that are intense, things that have consequences, um, whether it's, it's surfing bigger waves or doing the motherfucker awards or, or writing even I, I consider something of an intense activity. Um, when you're saying something that's uncomfortable, which you, you know, a lot about you're, you either go in one of two directions, which is kind of think, Ooh, I'm not going to do that again. Or think that wasn't uncomfortable, but there was something beneath it that I am actually gravitating towards. Um, so I, I, I don't know if that makes any sense, yeah, but I mean, I, there, that it all feels like the same general thing, whether it's big wave surfing or podcasting or motherfucker awards. I hear you. Stop trying to liken my job to yours because I'm not risking my life every day. I ha- I, we have <laughs> a couple of times, but are. like, holy shit, man. I mean, you, your humility is a little too much, dude. You got to lift that. Um, someone, someone with the chat name Cut the Pentagon said something really interesting 50 feet of water on top of you is about 22 pounds of weight on each square inch of your body that's nuts yeah oh oh my god i can't even wrap my mind around that i mean what is the like the biggest injury that you've sustained um surfing? biggest injury i've sustained oh yeah the was it the kite surfing <laughs> fucking, kite, <laughs> fucking kite surfing that's the, the in, biggest inju- injury i've sustained um Ooh. yeah I, I was learning how to kite surf and i got thrown across the beach big wave surfing uh and i broke my arm but big wave surfing um i've probably gotten rattled a little bit i think the most consistent thing that that big wave men and women need to worry about is um CTE and um, concussions. So at at Mavericks, um, I once I learned that the the when the waves break at Mavericks, the Richter scale at Berkeley, which is I think like fifty miles away, will register the movement. So that's that's really the biggest danger is you fall in the wrong spot and the wave rattles you hard enough that you get uh, a brain injury. I don't think I've had anything. (laughs) I don't think I've had many. I don't know. I can't really remember. (laughs) How long, like give us an example of how long you have been underwater at any given time. Not as long as you'd think like a 30 second hold down is a really long hold down. Yeah. That it's, it's more, that your perception of that you can be underwater for a minute you can get you can have multiple wave hold downs which is where you fall on one wave and then 
the next wave lands on you before you have a chance to come up. And that can lead to a minute underwater. Most people right now could hold their breath for a minute, but it's about doing it in that environment. And like I said, getting comfortable with holding your breath in those kinds of circumstances. One thing that has a new advent that has made big wave surfing a lot safer in recent years, and we actually have not had a, a death in a few years because of it, um, are these this invention called inflation vests. So it's a vest that you wear underneath your wetsuit that has a CO2 canister in it. And if you get into trouble, you can pull a cord that punctures the CO2 canister and it will create a bubble inside of your wetsuit and help you help bring you to the surface. It's definitely not foolproof and these things pop and it's something that you shouldn't rely on, but it has made the sport quite a bit safer. Yeah, because didn't you say one of the problems is like you cannot know which way is up when you're under the water, so you don't really know like where to swim to the surface because you're just like kind of yeah. in this weird other world. Yeah, they, you're hopefully still attached to your leash, uh, which are is on a big wave board like 12 feet long, 10 feet long, 12 feet long, which will stretch out to about 20 feet long. So you might be 20 feet underwater, but if your ankle is still tethered to your leash, that is attached to your surfboard, which is really buoyant. And sometimes what will happen is uh, your board will tombstone meaning that it's being sucked underwater, but just the tip of the nose is still out of the water. So just the when just the tip, just for a sec, just see how it feels. <laughs> and you're 20 feet below that. Um, so in that case, eventually the, the, it will let you up and you can do something called climbing your leash where you literally start climbing up your leash. Cause you know, that will eventually bring you to the surface. There's Holy something. Shit. Yeah, sounds easy. Okay, I'm I'm ready. Take me. Um, Let's do this, Abby. <laughs> I, you know, there's something about surfing that is so mysterious because I think just the ocean, like having a sport that's so incredible in the middle of this huge mysterious force that really comprises most of our planet, and it's so unknown to the vast majority of people living on earth you know it's it's very unexplored like we're still finding out all of these things about the deep sea and so there's something really incredible about that and mysterious about that and to be out in the middle of this and in just insane energy force and insane energy fields and not knowing like what's under you you know because i mean that's that's you know a lot of people are scared of the ocean in fact my neighbor the other day she's like oh, i i i don't like ocean sports i don't even want to go to the beach because i'm scared of sharks um i guess like it must be very meditative because i know a lot of it's like meditative just being out there between the waves and stuff which sounds really enticing but just the kind of horrifying nature of not knowing what's out there you know um what is like the crazy like have you seen anything crazy out in the middle of the ocean have how you, many sharks yeah many let, sharks let's get to what, what we're asking. really getting let's, to let's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, stop circling around this Abby. <laughs> um yeah i've seen a couple great white sharks um and I, they have seen their fins cruising around outside the kelp beds one or two times um i always 
appreciate the statistic that more people die from vending machines falling on them each year than shark attacks. Um, and I think that sharks, sharks and our phobia of them speaks more to a rational fear of the unknown than it does real danger of wild animals. Their, their interest in you is so minimal and yeah, sharks are around. I, they, they, are in the ocean, but they don't generally want to attack humans. And the risk of you dying in traffic on the way to the ocean is many times that of the risk of actually getting hit by a shark while in the ocean. Uh, one more thing on on this big wave experience, firsthand experience, before we go on to some other stuff is, uh, you know, we we heard a lot about what it's like to just be like in the underwater part. Like once you have wiped out and you're underwater and, and all of the energy and stuff down there. But the other thing that's just so wild is like the, the wiping out before you get underwater. Like if you watch videos of these big wave surfing, like I said, this is like being on top of a five story building, but sometimes people don't surf the wave and then get sucked under by it. They fall from like basically the top of the wave. You're basically like falling several stories and then you have the water, like the person in the chat uh, mentioned about this, the sheer weight of that much water on you. And so this, explain what happens when you like fall off the board, fall all the way down, get hit by the wave, and then what actually happens to you, it, it, other than just like the being underwater part. Like explain the wipeouts on a big wave and what that's like. You So if you're going fast enough and you fall flat rather than pencil dive, you yeah. will- <laughs> wow that was a, like a so, doom sound effect like all right so you'll because <laughs> you get a doom sound effect yeah so you'll you'll skid which is what you don't generally want to do um and that is usually where you'll get hurt that's where you can blow a rotator cuff or a knee or something like that um a lot of a lot of um joint uh injuries like a blown out shoulders that kind of thing because it it's similar to falling going really fast skiing or snowboarding right where you, you're just getting ragdolled down the face yeah like so skipping off the water too yeah so generally what you want to do is try and fall either head first or feet first so Jesus that you can penetrate Christ. but i've had plenty of experiences where you fall on a really big wave but because you can penetrate right the wave will just roll right past you and you won't be underwater for even 10 seconds. It's just about knowing the, the timing know, or, and all that. Yeah. It's about knowing the timing and, and like uh, sort of dancing with this big energy force and trying not to be right in the, the, the apex of that power. But if you're on any other side of it, or you can kind of roll off the back of it, um, you can get out of harm's way if you're kind of skilled in in basically like body movements underwater because what will happen is like imagine that the wave is sort of like a rolling you know a wave is kind of like a a a, a circle that's like moving right it, that does that make sense like yeah. you see a big barrel it's a big circle and that circle is is actually just energy moving through water so it's a continuous ball of energy. And if you can go down the top of that energy, eventually it's going to bring you up the back of it. So mm. if you can 
move your body in such a way that as it brings you up the back of it, you can sort of spurt out the back of that energy, then you'll be good. What, what happens a lot of times is you'll fall on a wave. It will suck you down. It will bring you back up on the, the back end of that Ferris wheel. You'll get one little chirp of air and then the Ferris wheel will come down again. You'll get sucked down again for a longer period of time. And then you need to wait for the back end of that Ferris wheel to, to bring you up that second time. For people who have never seen big wave surfing, I encourage people to check out uh, the Netflix series called A 100-Foot Wave that came out this year. And it really just shows the capacity of human beings to, you know, like break barriers yeah i mean just the fact that i guess the world record was what mikey or kyle would obviously know this before the the um 86 foot wave that was just basically conquered recently right so i mean it just keep they just keep upping the ante and the fact that this one dude discovered that huge wave in nazare portugal and then just everyone was like all right like we're gonna do this now and then they did it and now it's just like the waves just keep getting bigger and bigger and it's really incomprehensible when you watch this documentary and you see how huge these are and the fact that you really do need like tactical teams out there helping, you know, signaling to like the guy in the jet ski to help, you know, and then like this woman almost died because it wasn't coordinated enough. It's like it really requires a whole team effort to keep these people alive and well who are surfing these enormous waves. So when are yeah. you going to Nazare? <laughs> uh, I'm not interested in Nazare. So that's a a as you said a wave in portugal that people primarily tow in to surf so they're you're using the power of a jet ski to tow in off the back of a rope and it gives you the speed um and positioning to go catch a wave that's bigger than you could just with your own paddle muscles but the difference is that when you're going down the face of a wave towing in it's you're going really fast but it feels kind of like you're um just going down a big slope, which is, it's actually, there's a lot less adrenaline than paddling in on the crest of, of a way of a big wave, because that weightless feeling that you get when you're dropping in is so much better than the feeling of getting in really early on a jet ski. I think that, um, it's, it's gnarly. Don't get me wrong. And it's, it's incredibly dangerous to be on a wave that size, but the feeling is, is just totally different. And, um, I'm not a purist or anything. Like I do use jet skis sometimes and they are amazing, um, sa uh, safety vehicles, but I'm not, my thing is not really like going and surfing the biggest wave possible. I like surfing big waves that push my limits, but also I can, paddle into with my own two hands we're very happy you don't want to surf the wave yeah I don't, I don't, you I want to go on more hikes with me That's yeah yeah, yeah please you want my fucking mdma <laughs> trying to, trying to teach you how to use a bow healthy. and arrow man um yeah no it, it, it i totally hear what you're saying there's something about the natural force of your own body working with the ocean that gives you more um just more of like a reward almost it's like oh i this is like all me dude working with this huge force and yeah, I didn't really realize that, that the jet ski was necessary to push people in. But yeah, now that I'm thinking back at the documentary, it makes sense. Let's talk about your environmental work. Um, you've done 
tons of like beach cleanups around the world. You've really used your position as a professional surfer to draw attention to the huge global problem of plastic pollution and the pollution in the ocean. Um, you went, you even were like flown to Morocco with like a 72 hour notice to be like, like quote unquote, the ambassador. <laughs> like they propped you up in front of an American flag and they're like, all right, like Kyle Tierman, you're like on the news administering oh. this, this beach cleanup. I just listened to this episode again. It's so incredible. It was like Kyle doing like his own travel guide about Morocco. I encourage people <laughs> to listen to it. And I love the part where you're like, look, I could either, Talk, you're like, I didn't want to go all born on the 4th of July here because uh, <laughs> you're like, so I decided to just make it about like corporate pollution. You're like, I'm not going to like completely bring all these people down about like the, the depths of how criminal the U.S. empire is at this yeah. moment in time. Just, just burning the American flag. <laughs> yeah. You just piss on it. You're like, fuck you. Uh, <laughs> uh, fuck the corporatocracy. <laughs> Um, yes, I uh, obviously plastic pollution is an issue that surfers bear the brunt of mm -hmm. because a lot of plastic ends up in the ocean. Um, I think that this this connects probably more to. I mean, I don't know how much work you've done directly on plastic pollution, but I think that it's an interesting story that has a lot of parallels to the the work that you've done calling out corporations more generally which is this story that has been um there's been a concerted effort by marketing teams in plastic producing companies and fossil fuel companies to shift that burden onto consumers so you might know the story or, or people who are old enough to know this story of um an ad that played in the 70s called the, the Crying Indian ad. Have you heard about this? Absolutely. Please tell okay. us the story. It's an incredibly a dosed moment. Go for okay. it. Okay. So there was a, a nationwide PSA ad called the Crying Indian ad where this um, Native American guy who was, who was played by an Italian guy is <laughs> canoeing through this river full of plastic and he's looking very uh, morose. And then at the end it says, people start plastic pollution, people can stop it. And it's, I think it was funded by the, it was like the American Coalition to End Plastic Pollution. I, I might be botching that name, but it was a, a greenwashing campaign that was financed by Coca-Cola and a num number of other multinational corporations that wanted to shift that burden of the consumer having to deal with the after effects of a product that was produced that we don't really have anything that we can do with it. And, and these companies knew that if a movement started that forced them to take accountability for all of th this sea of plastic that was being produced in the, in the seventies and this shift that we were making towards a disposable economy it was going to be very expensive for them. But if they could start all these campaigns, forcing people to take responsibility for it themselves, then they could just continue to produce and produce and produce. And there would be that externalized cost that they wouldn't have to pay for. It's such an incredible story because this was around the same time that the reduce, reuse, recycle um, effort was put out there. But as you may have noticed, the reduce and reuse have basically been eliminated. And now it's just about recycle. 
Just throw your plastic right. bottles in the recycling can and you did your part. And, and you can pat yourself on the back. And it, it's so crazy that it was the actual plastic producing corporations themselves who put this burden onto us and that a lot of well-intentioned liberals have kind of inculcated themselves with thinking that this this is our problem this is our fault that it is an individualist thing that we just need to change the way we individually live and that's the best we can do and that we just can't do anything about this monolithic plastic these monolithic plastic corporations or pr plastic producing corporations who are totally unaccountable. And Kyle, to drive this point home, according to Reuters in a recent global survey, 75% of people in the world want single use plastic banned. But without like a worldwide ban by a government treaty or something, this is never going to happen. And the oil corporations are essentially dictating government policy, of course, here in this country. And it's frankly insane that we are still using this shit in 2022. Styrofoam and single-use plastic. How can we... I mean, first of all, you probably know more than anyone as someone who's been out there in the middle of the ocean. Like, how bad is this problem? Because you've traveled all over the world doing these cleanups and you've seen firsthand what this pollution does. Yeah, it's it's very sad to be on a um, pristine island in Indonesia and see a, um, <laughs> a sea of Nestle wrappers and Coca-Cola bottles and um, what you know, just shit that you that you it it um, optically looks so odd. Um, but I think that. I mean, it's it's a bigger issue than just optics. Like the, I think the the huge issue um, that a lot of developing countries need to bear is that the, these seas of plastic end up in rivers, which will will actually block the rivers, and a lot of diseases like malaria will be born from these these blockages um, due to the overwhelm of plastic that are that is in countries like Bangladesh. So plastic um, like dams the river? Yeah, yeah, there's sense. there are plastic rivers. But you know, I mean just to tie this point back once one step further, um we wouldn't have this problem if it weren't for the proliferation of fracking in recent years. Because when you frack um you're fracking for ethane uh, or you're fracking for methane, um, but a byproduct of that when when you frack is ethane, which is the building blocks of ethylene or polyethylene, um, which you make plastic out of. So uh, a lot of these companies that you know they're fracking down through Louisiana up through Cancer Alley into Houston, Texas, realized that they had this very cheap way to produce plastic and. They were then able to to work with a lot of these companies like Coke and Nestle to produce plastic at a very cheap price. And going back, you know, tying into the Motherfucker Awards, one of our winners this last year was Alec, um, the American um, Legislative uh, Exchange American Council. Exchange Council, American Legislative Exchange Council, which is basically a corporate bill mill that will go in on the municipal level and make plastic bag bans illegal. So it creates this kind of profit runway where it makes it very difficult for citizens to organize um, and, and ban plastic in their area. It's just horrific, honestly. Um, 
I just heard something pretty amazing that like Guatemala just did just initiated fully banning was it styrofoam or single-use plastic Mike I forget which one it was but it's a really great start um the fact that we're grappling with this now and that there's no action being taken on like there's just like this kind of farcical action being taken on climate change coupled with just complete inaction and in fact blocking like preemptive blockages from organizations like ALEC that are subsidized by the very corporations that are causing this global pollution is really beyond the pale. And I think it really encapsulates the true global nature of the problem and how difficult this is going to be to tackle. Because, yes, I mean, this is it's horrific on so many levels. Of course, you could talk about the great Pacific garbage patch. I know there's another huge Pacific or Atlantic garbage patch, I think, that's accumulating that are like the size of small states. And then you have the particulates that break down and down and down that are found in essentially like all seafood and fish. It's like it's inescapable. We're ingesting that, of course. What is that doing to all life on Earth? Because it's all one giant ecosystem that yeah. feeds off of each other. So so just to, to underscore one point and clarify, so people often talk about the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, mm -hmm. twice the size of Texas. Um, it's actually more like a plastic soup. So gyres are these big um, swirling toilet bowls, kind of you know, similar to the storms that I was talking about because of the, the Coriolis effect, you have these spirals. So if you drop a piece of plastic off the coast, many times eventually will end up in these gyres. So the plastic breaks down and it's like underwater confetti, but there's no physical island out in in the middle of the ocean. Mm -hmm. Just to clarify that. Which is point. even like worse because it's just totally. there's no way to clean it's like there's yeah basically no way to clean it up because of how minuscule some of these particulates are that are swirling around, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's you know, I've I, I'm still engaged in the environmental movement in in some capacity and think that I always will be, but it's been an interesting transition for me in more recent years because this last year I took a, a full-time job at Mudwater and a, a big part of my job there is to grow their editorial program, which is called Trends of Benefits. And the main beat that we're on there is psychedelic assisted therapy. So over the last year, most of my um, journalism has been focused on psychedelics and it's been a very interesting flip because it's not necessarily an against movement if that makes sense like you're it's not i'm not necessarily fighting against a single corporate polluter and it's more just about reporting on a lot of these new stories that are coming out with veterans taking mdma and psilocybin and Coupled with that, working now at a at a fast growing corporation, I've shifted my efforts from making documentaries to working somewhat inside the system. And and a lot of what I'm doing now is like I realize that if I can affect one change within the supply chain at Mudwater, which you know go, Mudwater goes out to I think 150 thousand people every single month that will be way more effective than anything that I could do individually. So I'm sort of grappling with right now trying to, I don't know if it's trying to affect change, but just experiencing what it's like to be inside a company now, having worked outside of it for so long. 
the callers in queue. Stay tuned. We are about to get to you. Do not drop out yet. Do not tune in, tune out, and drop out yet. We're uh, <laughs> we're about to get there. But Kyle, I'm glad you brought up Mudwater, and I want to incorporate that as well as the Motherfucker Awards to close this out. Um, I guess let's start with Mudwater because you brought that up. How uh, Mudwater is really interesting. I want you to explain what it is and, and also why you're so focused in the company on psychedelics. I mean, obviously, I get the the obvious that it's a mushroom based coffee alternative, but like, why is the company incorporating so much positive um, utopianism about psychedelics as like with this product? Yeah. I, I hope it's not utopianism. No, 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 I, no, I, I didn't, I, I didn't I, mean that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. just like what, why, why is this coupled together with the product? I guess. Sure. So uh, for those people who don't know, I mean, you've probably been bombarded by our fucking ads. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> on social media sorry i'm sorry <laughs> that's kyle's um, fault <laughs> it's my fault um <laughs> but it's you know, it's a coffee alternative it's made with masala chai adaptogenic mushrooms cacao for people who are trying to get off of coffee um it's a really good option um but the bigger story and thrust of the company is um it's it's about questioning norms coffee mm. is a it's a drug that everyone consumes and we don't really question it. And, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of benefits to coffee, but there are also a lot of problems that people experience like, um, not being able to fucking sleep or having anxiety all the time. And the, the testimonials that we get from people who can get off coffee, um, are, really remarkable um so that speaks to a bigger story that we're constantly circling around which is um questioning the premise um and i like one of our our mission statements at mudwater is dethrone coffee and that doesn't (laughs) necessarily mean like stop drinking coffee but it's just about dethroning it like if if something is on the throne it's that's the king and you're not allowed to question the king and and you're oh it's my dictator like straight up coffee dictates it's it's your dictate right so so it's obviously more so than my child (laughs) (laughs) but it's 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 interesting because i think that you can look whether it's something like coffee or whether it's a, a literal dictator choose like questioning the premise of anything is a very powerful exercise. And I think that what psychedelics are particularly useful for is questioning the premise. They allow you to see your life from a a different vantage point and move outside of these routinized ways of thinking. Um, And I think that that is how these two stories come together. It's, It's primarily about stepping outside of a cultural norm and trying to think through this stuff yourself. Well, it makes perfect sense when you look at the history of coffee being promoted by essentially the establishment, right? As a good worker bee, everyone's smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee at the factory. And these substances have been encouraged under capitalism. They reign supreme and everyone uses them for the most part. Um, and it's just funny because they are mind-altering substances and we're told by the state what is and what is not acceptable substances to alter our minds. And 
I'm happy that we're seeing this resurgence of psychedelics and this new post-prohibition era, and I'm really thrilled to see where it's going and the incredible benefits that it can bring. And I'm super stoked on Mudwater. Thank you for sponsoring this podcast as well, Mudwater. (laughs) (laughs) I hope hope I'm getting some good shit, man. You got to send me some Mudwater for for this one. You know, we actually do have someone in the chat saying they've been trying to find it in their store, but they can't because they said they have a nervous breakdown when they cannot get their Americano. So that speaks to the the true (laughs) level of addiction that people have to caffeine. Thank you, uh, Jabber, for the comment. But let's... um, Oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, just so Abby, just to your point though about about coffee being yeah. used to promote the worker bee, right? And the the I mean, there's there's a joke in here about how your boss gives you coffee for free. <laughs> I don't know what the punchline is, but like, why would your boss be giving you coffee for free? And like, why would they be giving you more breaks to take to drink coffee? Right? It's it's primarily about be- getting people to work harder and. I think even deeper than the story about psychedelics in Mudwater, it's the story about um, rethinking work and treating employees with dignity. That's the most exciting thing that I've had a chance to be a part of since joining the company is helping to craft our employee benefits. I can't take full credit for this at all, but it's pretty remarkable what's happening. Like We have um, every other Friday off, we have... uh, a mental health budget where we get free access to a therapist is every employee at, at Mudwater. Um, we get a, a physical well-being budget of, of 200 bucks a month where you can join a gym. Um, we get uh, childcare uh, up to 500 bucks a month for um, any kids of, of mothers under two. Um, we get a, a dream trip um, every year where like every employee gets to take one trip uh so basically this is never going to be scaled because it's never going to be scaled because (laughs) no one works but no but i think that i mean we work our fucking asses no no, no, i mean i mean it's like so counterintuitive to like the corporate nature of you know it's like that's that's why it's like it's an amazing gold standard of how all corporations should be but it's like i just i it won't be scaled because of how counterintuitive is to like profit making you know it it is but it isn't because employee retention is oh, so much course. higher at yeah. mudwater so mm-hmm. it's it's more of a conversation of short term versus long term thinking well you'd like to think so but look at i mean we all know that intuitively like especially cuz you are living and working in a corporation that does that but i feel like yeah i mean it's hard to extrapolate that and be like why the fuck isn't everyone doing this if it keeps employees long term but i think we all know that the incentive structure is not there for the large amount of corporations although i appreciate very much that you are doing something differently and that mudwater is doing something differently i think it's really cool but let's get to this Kyle because we need to talk about the motherfucker awards okay. because you're doing it again right Oh, no, you're not, not doing it again. Oh, shit. We're not I thought doing you were it doing again, it a third but, time. Okay. But I, I want to, well, let's talk about it. Okay, and okay, I'll, okay. I'll, I'll say, I want to say something. Okay, sorry about that. For some reason, I thought you were doing it again post-COVID. But let's just talk about what you did because it's such an incredible, awesome show that you and your co-host, Chris Ryan, put on for basically holding corporations accountable but in a really funny way where famous comedians would go up there and receive these awards pretending to be the CEOs of these corporations. I was honored to be a presenter two years in a row. It was just a really fun time, and I thought it was a really creative and ingenious way to talk about these problems, not being a drag, not lulling people to sleep. Um, and it was just really exciting, Kyle, and, and I really appreciated you putting that together. Talk about it. 
Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I super appreciate you. You being involved, you added um, a lot of credibility to it. And, <laughs> uh, and, and you also, um, well, you did, and you also got us um, Matt Taibbi that first year too, which was also just so huge. So we, we had Taibbi um, present an award for uh, JP Morgan Chase Bank as the top financier of tar sands um, fossil fuels. And the, the premise of it was that it was a, it's a, a gala Academy Awards style where we celebrate the corporations that fuck Mother Earth. And real journalists and activists will present these nominations um, bragging about these corporate polluters' achievements. And then professional comedians will go up and uh, give acceptance speeches on their behalf. So for the first year, Taibbi presented J.P. Morgan Chase. We had uh, two awesome comedians named Natasha Legero and Moshe Kasher go up on stage and co-accept the award. They're um, husband and wife in real life, but in the speech, their whole premise was that they were the brother and sister heir to <laughs> J.P. Morgan Chase. People can and check they... it out on the Motherfucker Awards uh, YouTube playlist. You can yeah. watch them accepting this this award, and it's hilarious. Yeah, and their whole premise was that they were um, in an incestuous romantic relationship, <laughs> and the only thing that got them horny was financing dirty energy. <laughs> <laughs> so is I'm, that was what was really fun about it is getting these. I think that it, what it did was it allowed journalists like yourself who normally are maybe confined to to speaking about heavy issues in a serious way um i think it gave you guys permission to be funny and and theatrical and i think that it gave comedians permission to talk about heavier issues and use their skill of comedy to to transmute it into a way that was palatable for people I think that comedians pretty often are are really sensitive um, and they they just are there. I think that that's where a lot of comedy comes from. It comes from agitation and annoyance and a noticing of problems, whether they're big or small. But I think that comedians don't often feel permission to talk about the big issues because they're afraid of sounding like bummers. But if you but we gave them that theater and and I gave you know guys like um Moshe Kasher or Simon Rex, for example, who who accepted on behalf of um, Purdue Pharmaceutical, just gave them basic facts about the corporation and let them go where they wanted. So Simon, for example, was like, like Purdue Pharmaceutical, your pain is our gain. You know, like it's it was just a really um, yeah. He did a great it, job. It was, was really fun impressed. and it was it was good to to see and and recognize how similar in a lot of ways comedians and journalists are, despite the fact that often they're worlds away. And you dabble into both worlds as well. Why? What made you decide to not um, pursue it for a third time? I got a job, Abby. <laughs> <laughs> I got a job. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I had a, a very good time doing it. It's a fucking lot of work. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I was in a lot. I, I wanted to be be fair and bipartisan in the best way I could about the companies that we were calling out. And there's so much 
I didn't want to get sloppy with it. And I, mm-hmm. I felt like companies that we were quote unquote celebrating were unequivocally um, sociopathic. Yeah. Um, but I did, I just felt like I didn't want to be fishing for anything and continue to do that. And I, and I also didn't want to necessarily be repetitive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wanted to say this on your show because I feel like your audience might, might be just the people for this. I would love to see the MOFAs live on if someone wanted to carry this torch forward and felt like they have the producing skills and comedy connections to make it happen. We have a lot of the scaffolding, um, metaphorical scaffolding and, and show run already built out. Um, and it's something that I think is, a a funny idea and would love to be a part of it. In I would love to be a part of it in some capacity. I just don't have the, the time to put it together myself. Yeah. I mean, knowing how the organization that require that's required to do something that huge is like months and months and months of work. It's a full-time job. So, um, I'm super honored and I, you know, it's very cool that we were able to be part of that capsule in time and it makes it so much more special. Everyone listening Check out the Kyle Tierman show. Check out his writing at Mudwater. Check it out at Patagonia and find him on Instagram at Kyle underscore T man. We're about to take two calls, Kyle. Let's check it out. You know, who's um, on the line? Uh, yeah, but um, before we take a call, there's a question in the chat that's been in there for a while. I wanted to give to you, Kyle, and then um, Illumeo, get ready because you're going to get called up right after Kyle answers this question. But we had a question in the chat, Kyle, about the uh, the issue that uh, wetsuits are made from petroleum products. Uh, absolutely, they are. Um, Patagonia it makes wetsuits that are made from something called Ulux rubber, um, which is the it's it's a a plant um, that is not made from petroleum, um, and they've open sourced the they've open sourced the the technology for other wetsuit companies. But yes, I agree with you, and I I also fly on planes and will often use plastic products, and that's the um, infinitely complex and uh, paradoxical world that we live in. But we do our best. The crying we? Indian will be very mad at you for. Yes, we live a in a society. <laughs> we live in a society. It's cool. It is very cool that there is a alternative out there. And when yeah. when you actually hooked Abby and I up with wetsuits, you hooked us up with the plant based ones that were not made from petroleum products. Yes. So it's cool that they're there. So Illumeo, you're up. Everyone, when you call in, make sure to take yourself off mute. And start out by telling us your name and where you are calling from. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Lumo, and I am calling from Curacao in the Caribbean. It's a small island next to Aruba off the coast of Venezuela. Cool. Welcome. <laughs> What's up? Hey. Uh, so I was listening. I, I popped in when you were talking about the whole, um, you know, um, plastic in the water and things like that. And um, one thing I've noticed being from an island is that these conversations are always one way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's always somebody from a rich country talking down to a smaller country. Um, so like so, I just wanted to give the point of view of an islander real quick. We are we are part of the Dutch Kingdom, uh, which means that uh, like just like uh, Texas would be a state in the U.S., we are we are one of the one of the one of the um, former colonies of of the Dutch. 
so the Dutch uh, Dutch people come down here uh, very often, regularly. We have a lot of Dutch people living on the island, and uh, they are super fanatical when it comes to when it comes to the environment, which is great, which is good. But they they tend to they tend to um, dictate down to us. Um, what ha- what they think what their brand of that should be for example um you will get like on social media down here you will get like dutch people um like calling local people names because we're not as we're not as woke as they are maybe or we're not mm-hmm. as we, we're we're not as uh, we're not we're not as witted as they are because in a in a in a rich country you can afford to be upset about these types of things, but in a smaller country you're just fighting to stay alive, you know. Um, and uh, so I wanted to I wanted to represent that point of view real quick, just yeah. so everybody yeah. is is aware that the, that when you when you come from a rich country where you can afford to recycle, we don't even have a recycling center down here. Um, mm-hmm. when, when you come from a rich country where you you have all these nice conventions and people who think the same as you and you have places where you can go for these recourses whereas down here you don't and you try to push these these ideas on a smaller country that maybe can't do it you know logistically uh you you grow a sense of res- resentment which is what happens down here like down here no one thinks no one thinks well of the dutch even though they mean well uh for sure yeah. 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 Well, here I, I have a question for you, and I, I really appreciate the um, the perspective. What do you think would be better ways for people from rich countries to go about starting those conversations? Recognize first where you're where you're starting at, where the the person you're talking to, the country you're you're talking about, where are they right now? Do they even have a recycling center? What, then, then don't bring it up because you're you're gonna talk about something that you know. Unless you're thinking about opening one yourself, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, consider 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 always where they're uh, where they're at at that moment in time before you before you start talking about. Well, it's easy, you know. We just bring in 500 volunteers and this and that, and uh, we ban this and we ban that, and you know. You have to understand, we don't make anything here. Everything is imported. As soon as you start talking about banning things, what you're really talking about is putting people out of business and putting people out of work. Well, let me just jump in there really quickly and thank you for your comment. Um, and I, I think it's a really great concern because, you know, we are from like a colonizing entity. And it, it, it I think that Kyle and I are pretty astutely aware that our government is like responsible for a lot of this and the subsidization of massive corporations who are the primary um, culprits of this. And absolutely, I don't think anyone you know, looks at islands like the one that you're living on and, and can blame anything on that or is saying that it's just a simple solution of doing like a volunteer beach cleanup. I think that we're trying to push forward the bigger ideas of the culpability of the rich countries to facilitate these global crises and the lack of accountability for something like the United States empire. Um, and that's, I think it's a really important point is that there is this kind of lack of consciousness linking these things together and there's this colonizing attitude that looks down at people and says oh you need to do this you need to do that without taking stock of what their government has done to cause these problems right in particular the dutch the biggest company being uh royal dutch shell oil 
And so, yeah, yeah I mean, what a great irony that a colony of royal, basically a colony of royal Dutch shell. Uh, it's, I can understand it being frustrating people coming and telling you you're not uh, recycling enough who are coming from yeah. the country. That's <laughs> yeah, that that's big gross. Uh, oil produced, that big oil company powerhouse. But, uh, uh, Olivia, thank you so much for your call. We're going to move on to okay. Don. Thanks again thank for you. calling in. Appreciate you. you. And um, Kylie could jump in with another thing if you wanted to, but uh, we're going to get Don on the line. So tell us where you are calling from, Don. Hi, yeah, I'm calling from Central New York. Welcome hey, to the show, Don. Yeah, thanks. You know, I called in once before, uh, I think it was your second episode, Abby, talked about how great, you know, your courage and what you did with the Palestinian crap with the, with the you know, the, the oath to Israel and your work since then, absolutely brilliant. And I love your show became my immediate favorite in a way, because while you talk about serious subjects, you talk about, well, other serious stuff, like dosing and, 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 and hallucinogenics and all <laughs> these other subjects. It's wonderful. No, I haven't tripped in years, but I think it's really beneficial and mind expanding and all the rest. I expressed all this the first time I called, but then every time I called in afterwards, you completely skipped me. And I don't know, but you know, they say curiosity killed the cat. Wait, no, seriously. They Gun. say curiosity killed. Wait, wait, Gun. let me finish. Please. They yeah, say yeah, curiosity yeah. killed the cat and the tiger can't change his stripes. <laughs> but I just want to know why I'm blacklisted and why Tony, your producer, just despises me or something and will, will not call on me since that first time. I, he always skips me and never calls on me. I, I just curious as to why. Well, let me explain myself. Yeah, Mike, what, what's going on? Hey, hey, first let me explain myself. I have no idea what's going on. Mike, this is all on you. You're at the switchboard. I got the board. <laughs> I got yourself. the devices. Show I got yourself. all the contraptions hooked up. Don, I, I will say that our, our house rules with Colin Show is uh, we have limited time to do the show because we actually do the show while our child is napping. So we have a pretty much a, like a 90-minute narrow window to do it. And when we, we take calls at the end and we're running short on time, we choose we skip people who have called in before to give priority to people who are first-time callers. Um, yeah, however, no, I, I've only I, done that a couple I, times. I will say I don't remember skipping you, though. <laughs> What's that? No, 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 no. Mike, Mike, Mike. You and Abby have thanked people. Oh, love to hear from you again. I know you skipped me. That's absolutely appropriate. But you actually said to people, oh, we love to hear from you. We always love to hear from you. So, no, that's a bogus argument. You done. Anything else? Done. Guess what? <laughs> Mike's <laughs> done getting off the couch. Sorry, Don. We, we, didn't Wait, any, no, Don. We, didn't, uh, we didn't mean anything personal. No, 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 Don. I don't think I... I remember skipping you, but I'm super sorry if hey, I look, have. I'm so um, okay. Wait, wait, no, I want to hear. I want to hear more from Don. Oh, well, wait, wait, did you just drop? I didn't mean to. <laughs> Don, I, I wanted to. Don, Don I wanted sorry. to hear more from you. Get back in the queue, Don, and I, I can hear you again. But Come back uh, on. I accidentally went to the next call because I thought that that it was over. Um, but anyways, Jay, take yourself off mute. Tell us where you're calling from, and. I hope you have a question for Kyle about surfing. <laughs> Jay. Hey, Kyle. You there? What's up, Jay? Hey. Good afternoon, brother. So, I don't know if I have a question. I just want to set, shed a little light on something. So, I'm 68. I've been surfing for 55 years. I also, Abby uh, and Mike, I love your work. I'm a longtime climate activist. I'm a commercial fisherman. Um... Next to riding waves, I like to sit down and chain myself to shit. Um, particularly banks. Um, anything, really. <laughs> but, That's badass, man. Oh, I wasn't sure if that was like a dominatrix thing <laughs> yeah, or like yeah. bank. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, listen, life's painful enough. It's got to be painful. <laughs> but um, here's, here's what I wanted to say. So, you know, it's... 
I mean, it's been decades since I've surfed anything more than like four and a half times on the face. But, you know, um, I know the ocean has just been good to me and, and I think it's gentle and I, I feel like a lot of what you've spun in your horror of big wave surfing is <laughs> it sort of bypasses, um, you know, I've, I made my living on the sea and, and I love to surf and, and I love life. And, and the sea is just, it sort of cradles me in her arms. And sometimes it sucks, but not usually. <laughs> you know? I, I agree but with I, you, man. The, sorry, if, sorry yeah. if you had a question, but I'm happy to comment on that. Yeah, no, you know, I, I'm a little bit unarticulate. I went to work early today and my crewman was sick with COVID. So I, uh, I'm a little delirious right now. What do you do, Jay? I'm a lobster fisherman in Gloucester, Massachusetts on the East Coast. Oh, nice. Gloucester. That's where... Um... That's where Sebastian Younger wrote The Perfect Storm, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Dude, That's come on the show book. sometime, Jay. Great book. Yeah, no. Yeah, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly, man. I, I love the ocean as much as I love anything. Um, and I, yeah, man. I, mean, I wouldn't be a surfer if it was just a, a scary, horrifying experience. I think that big wave surfing is often what, that's sort of the the opener wow factor that a lot of people tie me to because it's like, wow, how could you imagine doing that? But the reality is that most days I'm going for a surf or for a swim in fairly calm ocean. Um, and it's a very, I think that it's a very peaceful experience and that's probably what, you know, Abby and Mike, you guys can attest to too. Like it's, it allows you to step out of, something and you know as a fisherman like just being on a us being in an environment that is not solid i think does something very interesting to the mind and it also kind of speaks to why beachfront property is so expensive right like it it wouldn't be expensive if the ocean was just horrifying for people to look at but they're willing to pay millions of dollars more just to look at something so that very much proves your point that the ocean is peaceful and beautiful and and we're willing to shell out a lot of cash just to be near it all, all of nature but i got to say i hate fucking gentrification it's doing more to wreck the environment here than anything um you know, those of us who, who work on the sea here can't even live anywhere near it, you know. But anyway, it's another wine. But I guess, I, you know, all of nature, I think, really does that. And, you know, this, I don't know, this rapacious capitalist system is just, everything has a price. And uh, I don't know. But, you know, surfing's a free ride. You don't get too much of that in this culture, right? I just want to encourage people yeah. to go sir. They don't have to go and ride 50 foot waves and drown. You know, they can go and catch some waves and be in the water and um, it's a good thing. Yeah, I I 100% agree. I do think that more people should should surf and it is, you know, are the although there are barriers to entry like um, you know, getting a surfboard and driving to the beach, you can actually get most of that equipment pretty cheaply on Craigslist. And I agree with you that our culture wants you to pay for everything, but surfing is one of these spaces that is in the public domain. Um, and the ocean is really for everyone. And if it's not a crazy barrier to entry to, to get yourself out there. 
So I think everyone should do more of it. Yeah, Jay, yeah. thank yeah, you so yeah. much for calling in, Jay. Uh, I, I just wanted to say one comment really quickly earlier when I said it was terrifying to go and be crushed with like a one-foot wave in the whitewash. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love the ocean. I love being out there. There's nothing more serene and meditative than just swimming out in the middle of the ocean. And um, mm -hmm. I encourage everyone. I mean, it really is an incredibly humbling and beautiful experience. And I really appreciate your insight, Jay. I'd love to come meet you one day and, and eat a lobster together. <laughs> Catch and eat. You, you, guys, you guys have my calling information. I actually live on a houseboat in a beautiful salt marsh estuary. Say um, less. Yeah. I'm there. <laughs> That's amazing. If you to and do some work, um, I'll pick you up at the airport and put you up. Wow. <laughs> All right, done. Give me, give me a DM. <laughs> All right, Jay, thank you. And, uh, and, you're, and I do appreciate I you. Promise, I mean that. Thank That's, you, Jay. Very cool. And I, I can attest I've gotten gotten so much out of surfing myself. I always think about Kyle when I'm out there. But even though I am not great and get pounded pretty hard, it's it's just such a, a as a practice, a challenge to yourself, the meditation out there, it's it's so beneficial to me. And I you know definitely thank Kyle for that above anyone else because um, you're the one who got me into it. Um, all right. We have one more caller in the queue. Jay, thanks again. I'm going to get to thanks, the next Jay. caller. The next caller is a repeat caller. To keep it fair up here, we're not we're not going to hide from our detractors, Don. Uh, we got come on back, Don. Sorry, I kicked you off, but what do you got to say? You got I'd, let's. I was putting a time limit on you, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine. So uh, if we could bury the hatchet, I you don't have to tell me why. But if if we're good to go forward, there's no yeah, reason I, why. <laughs> I don't. There's no okay, reason why. I'm water, sorry. Water, well, when you call the first <laughs> water under the water bridge, under so the bridge, water under the surfboard. How about a pandemic elbow bump? Boom. There you yep. go. Yep. Boom. This All right. Boom. So, wow. You know, but so back, so the topic's about surfing and stuff. And, you know, I don't really, you know, surf or I don't do that stuff. But uh, so, I mean, I don't really have anything to say. All I wanted to know was why. <laughs> <laughs> you we see you, Don. We see you. <laughs> but no, I don't have to be incognito. I can go back to my Ladybug Lance profile. I had to hide oh, this that. is Lance. Oh, Lance. <laughs> That's why I didn't yeah. recognize you, Don. I wouldn't have skipped you this time. Yeah. Because there weren't, as before, the other times there were so many people in the yeah. queue. I had to, I had well, to yeah, choose. No, no, I don't want to relitigate. I don't want to relitigate. We're good. <laughs> but no, you, you went to people. You skipped me and you went to people that you said, we always love to hear from you. This is a you call every time. Let's hear from this person again. And still skip me. So that really doesn't really make any Closing thoughts, done. Anyway, Close us out. Anyway, I'm Close so us out. glad about LSD. LSD, because I don't know what else. This the main one of the main topics of your show, which I think is so great, is um, it's just an amazing thing, right? So mushrooms versus uh, LSD. We actually have wonderful mushrooms that grow here. I never found any, but I've eaten them, you know, fresh for people that have found them here. They're kind of long, brown, slimy, really gross. You, oh, you eat the fresh ones, yeah? How is that well, different than the dried? Is it less potent? Very powerful. You know, usually, really? I get the ones that they have the kind of blue moldy look, and they're the short, big caps. Wow. You know, those are the usual ones, the dried mushrooms. But yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, of course. But I mean, like, I, I, I've only eaten fresh ones in Amsterdam, and it, it, I remember them not being as potent as the dried. I feel like for obvious reasons. But that's so crazy that you could just like you just forage on your own. No, no, actually, oh, I never okay. did myself. I was somebody who, uh, they had a camp on Skinny Atlas Lake. I don't know if that's where they got them, but they got them somewhere locally, you know, in the regionally or, you know, locally in the Syracuse area. And they were amazing. And shrooms What's, are so different. 
What's the biggest dose that you've taken? Well, of LSD, I've taken a lot. I've taken like 10 or 15, you know, hits. What? Which would be like like four or five window pane back in the day because they were called four-way. So I've taken a lot of acid. Shrooms affect me in a way. (laughs) Shrooms affect me in a way that it's like every drug. It's like the physicalness of, and I'm not a cokehead ever was, but I've done good coke before. I actually got really good coke when I lived in New York City. Uh, Purple flake or pink flake from you know whatever so but shrooms to me it's like being high on pot physically just like buzzing like a like a the incant like a you know like a filament and a light bulb you know just just high energy intense energy of coke and it's like being kind of you know drunk a little bit because i feel high and yet i don't i can walk a straight line so it's like all of the drugs pushed into one as far as mushroom very physical and mental lsd affects me very differently i'll just tie it into one thing that I think is really fascinating, and it comes back to like Indian culture. Here's a here we have. They're not they're not completely monolithic, but most you know uh, indigenous cultures, Native in American Indian cultures, they have a very strong sense of like worshiping nature, and they have a strong connection to hallucinogens. I don't think that's a coincidence. Here's my story. I dosed on mushrooms once way back in the day, and I was just giddy with laughter. I was all alone, and it was raining like crazy outside. I couldn't go outside and just like let myself go. I was in, a, in an apartment, and I was just laughing. It was just crazy energy. So I just <laughs> laid down. I didn't know what else to do, and I'm looking at the window. Check this out. And I'm watching, you know, like these big, fat thunderstorm raindrops. When they hit, they wouldn't drop right away. They would just cling on the, on the uh, window. Then a little tiny, you know, like part of it would start to drip down and find a channel. And then the whole drop would then go to the bottom. You know, gravity would pull it to the bottom of the window. All I could think of was that these drops didn't want to be pulled down. They had an intelligence and they wanted to sit on the window. And yet fighting gravity, they eventually had to succumb to gravity and then they were pulled down. So, I mean, I was actually animating or whatever you want. What's the word? Uh, um, to Like uh, anthropomorphizing to the water droplets. To make something animal, to an, an, whatever yeah, the word anthropomorphi- is. You basically, you tapped in. You tapped into that yeah. underlying truth, Don, yeah. or should I say Ladybug you know? Lance. You tapped into that universal consciousness, my friend. Thank you for closing us out with that awesome story. Everyone, check out. Kyle Tierman show. Check out all of his writings, Mudwater Patagonia, and check him out on Instagram. Thank you so much for tuning in to Dosed. Kyle, uh, anything else to say before we close out? We love to have you. Love you guys. Always appreciate. Just you guys are great. Take us I, back uh, home to nature, Kyle. Then we will. Home. Let's come come out. Let's let's go surf next week. Take us home, Down baby. Yeah. Thank the world to you guys. You're the we're, best. We're there, dude. We'll see you soon. You, Thank Kyle. you so much, man. You're the best. Thanks again to our live audience. If you're not live, listening on other platforms, join us live every week here on Colin. As always, going to leave you with a little tunes on the way out. This is Anahedron and